Thank you, David. Never had an introduction quite like that. Oh, yeah. I have to say, have to say. Wow. It's so good to be with you, Mission Hills. Um, so uh, at Austin Mustard Seed, we've been going through what we call our guiding values, and this is the last sermon in that series. And one of the values that we've said for us is wholeness. And so this is kind of what we mean by that when we say wholeness. God is in the process of restoring our lives, those around us, and all creation to shalom or wholeness. Whether through spiritual disciplines, practicing mercy, creation care, offering forgiveness, or encouraging wholeness, our pain is transformed. We become bearers of the good news, actively participating in God's ongoing work of renewal. So that's a little bit about what we mean when we talk about wholeness. Um, you know, the thing is, usually when I preach, or when most people preach over some kind of theme or topic, there's one kind of go-to passage that most people can go to to talk about that. And, and we can kind of do that, and we're certainly going to do that tonight. But the thing about wholeness is that's kind of the meta-narrative of the entire Bible. It's the people of God. And, and starting out in Genesis, and I won't get into it too much now because we'll dig in a little bit later, but... Uh, things get broken pretty early on, and, and all of a sudden we live in a fractured world, and we still do today. And so the story, the whole story of the Bible is God in his rescue mission, trying to put things back together, make things whole again. It's the entire arc of the Bible. So uh, before we jump into the passage tonight, uh, if it's okay, I'd like to just lead us in prayer. Um, God, thank you that you are at work in the world, that the same God that is leading and directing Austin Mustard Seed is directing Mission Hills, and uh, we are uh, uh, one tribe with you, God. We thank you for your wholeness and the things that you're doing in the world, and that you invite us to participate in that with you and be co-workers with you. So we love you and pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start tonight in Matthew 19, 28 through 30. I think we've got a slide. There we go. Sorry. My, my formatting in my slides is wider than yours, apparently. I'll go ahead and start. So this is Matthew 19, 28 through 30. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of His glory, you will have followed Me, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So that is from the New Revised Standard Version. That's kind of my go-to version of the Bible. I like it, but I also like to kind of refer to others. So uh, that's kind of a very literal translation. Let's jump to the end of the other end of the spectrum of Bible translations. Go to the message. I like to read out of this too. Um, so this is the same passage, just in the message translation. Jesus replied, yes, you have followed me in the recreation of the world when the Son of Man will rule gloriously. You who have followed me will also rule, starting with the 12 tribes of Israel. And not only you, but anyone who sacrifices home, family, fields, whatever, because of me, will get it back a hundred times over, not to mention the considerable, considerable bonus of eternal life. This is the great reversal, many of the first ending up last and the last first. 
So uh, I don't know about you, the, the 12 tribes of Israel part's a little confusing, but don't let that trip you up here. We're talking about renewal. We're talking about recreation. So Jesus is setting up here what the end goal is. The end goal is renewal. At the end of all things, all of it is renewal. And so I don't know about you, but I came from a tradition where we were told the end goal is to just kind of do away with everything and start over again on a cloud somewhere. But Jesus is saying, no, we're going to make things new. We in this kingdom are about the business of making things new. Uh, Matthew 5, 48 says, be perfect as God is perfect. Now that is quite daunting, is it not? Be perfect as God is perfect. I want to suggest that a better translation would be, be whole as God is whole. That's a little bit more accessible, isn't it? Be whole as God is whole. So this world is fractured and God's purpose is not a band-aid. He's not interested in duct tape. It's to make it new again, to make it new again. And so I mentioned earlier in Genesis, so you have to remember, go back to the garden. Everything was perfect. Uh, There was a man and there was a woman and there was God and things were perfect. They walked in perfect fellowship with God. There was no sin. There was no shame. And then things went south. But it's important to remember that that was God's first intention was wholeness. The way God created it was whole. And so things went south. Uh, Man and woman decided not to worship God, but rather to worship some created things. And so things go south and things have never been the same since. But this is when God puts his rescue plan into action. And since then, God has been about the business of subverting that brokenness and creating wholeness. Okay, so what does wholeness look like? We've got a next slide up there. You can go to that one. So um, if probably if you have been a part of evangelicalism for a while, you recognize this. I grew up with this all around, right? So this is an illustration of the way things are. So this is us on one side, and there's a chasm, and there's God. And so we have no way to get to God because we've got sin separating us from God. Okay, we can go to the next slide. And then... Jesus Christ comes and he makes a way. So uh, Jesus dies on the cross, and so that bridges that chasm for sin, and it makes a way to God. So uh, here's the thing. I, I, I quite like this. This is good. Um, but what I want to say is that it's not the fullness of the story. It, it's not all of it. That, takes, that, that explains the eternal life part. Remember in the message version, it says, and as an added bonus, you get eternal life. But according to the scripture, that's just the bonus. That's not the main attraction, right? And so this is good. I'll probably use this with my kids someday. It's a good starting point, but it's not the fullness of the gospel. Okay, so um, under this model of then this is all that we see, here's what it looks like. You pray a prayer, and sometimes they're presented almost as magical words, right? You pray a prayer, and then you're in. And then after that, I don't know, try to be good, I guess, maybe, maybe go to church, um, but, you, but you're in, you know? If you, if, you, if you prayed the prayer and you said you don't want to be in, it's too late because you're in. You can't do anything about it, all right? You've prayed the magic words, and that's it. Um, and as you can imagine, that this has been really unfulfilling un, uh, uh, for people, uh, and a lot of people have 
lost their faith because of it, because they've been told this is the fullness of the story. And the story by itself is, one, boring, uh, it's lifeless, and it has caused a lot of people to walk away from their faith because in and of itself, it's not a story worth living. Pray this prayer and then hang on till you die is not a story worth living for. Okay, so I want to bring in the words of uh, one of my favorite people of all time, N.T. Wright, here. This is kind of a long, uh, a long quote. I wouldn't even call it a quote. This long passage that I'm going to read. This is from his book, Surprised by Hope. But I feel like it's really important, so try, try to follow me if you can. Okay, he says, Heaven and hell are not, so to speak, what the whole game is about. This is one of the central surprises in the Christian hope. The question of what happens to me after death is not the major central framing question that centuries of theological tradition have supposed. The New Testament, true to its Old Testament roots, regularly insists that the major central framing question is that of God's purpose of rescue and recreation for the whole world. The entire cosmos The destiny of individual human beings must be understood within that context, not simply in the sense that we are only part of a much larger picture, but also in the sense that part of the whole point of being saved in the present is so that we can play a vital role, parentheses, Paul speaks of this role in shocking terms of being fellow workers with God, within that larger picture and purpose. And that, in turn, makes us realize that the question of our own destiny in terms of the alternatives of joy or woe is probably the wrong way of looking at the whole question. The question ought to be, how will God's new creation come? And then, how will we humans contribute to that renewal of creation and to the fresh projects that the creator, creator God will launch into this new world? The choice before humans would then be framed differently. Are you going to worship the creator God and discover thereby what it means to become fully and gloriously human, reflecting his powerful, healing, transformative love into the world? Or are you going to worship the world as it is, boosting your corruptible humanness by gaining power or pleasing or pleasure from forces within the world, but merely contributing thereby to your own dehumanization? and the further corruption of the world itself. So if you hung with me there, thank you. So not only is it not as simple as praying a prayer, although that is a very important and valid part of it, we're talking about something so much greater here. Uh, I heard a story one time about this uh, children's ministry. You gathered the children, the, the leader basically said, okay, this is hell, it's very unpleasant, um, and this is heaven. So raise your hand if you want to be in Jesus in heaven instead of hell. Okay, you've now become Christians. And when we do that, we raise a generation of kids who are extremely confused and unfulfilled in their faith, if they stick with it at all, if that's what it's all about. So let's talk about what it's more like. It's more like allegiance. It's more like allegiance. Uh, I've been on this kick for a while now. There's this uh, great book that recently came out called Salvation by Allegiance Alone because it points out that the word that's translated for faith most of the time in the Bible is this Greek word called pistis. And uh, 
Pistis has a little bit different ring to it than what we translate or what we think of as faith, because often we think of the word as faith as kind of uh, mentally agreeing with a set of facts, right? I believe in that. I have faith in that. So did, do I think Jesus Christ was a real person who was God in the flesh, who was uh, born of a virgin, and then he died on the cross and then rose again? I believe those things, so I am a Christian. But the word faith is really something different when Paul says we are saved uh, by faith alone, through grace alone. Uh, he's saying uh, through pistas alone. And it's much more like our word for allegiance. Allegiance. That I have allegiance with Christ, that Christ, and this also fits with the king work, kingdom uh, words too as well. So uh, Christ is our king on the cross. He was ascending to the throne and inaugurating his new kingdom. And we say, I have allegiance to that king, right? So that doesn't let me off the hook. That means that once I pray that prayer, I can't just live how I want to because that's not allegiance. We owe our king allegiance. So it, it's kind of like allegiance. It's also kind of like uh, marriage. Um, so many people think and so many marriages have been destroyed because people thought that once they took their marriage vows, that was the end of it. That that was the main event, was the marriage ceremony, them saying their vows to each other in front of friends and family and God. But those of us, at least those of us who are married, know that that's actually when the work begins. That's not the end. That is when the work begins. And, you, and marriages, especially if you've been married for a while and you've seen some of your peers um, end their marriages, you know that marriages do not take care of themselves. You have to work at it. It takes work every day to be faithful to your vows. And I'm not just talking about infidelity. I'm talking about, you hear people who they get divorced and they say, well, we just grew apart. They're not lying. They're not lying. That's why you have to work every day to grow together with your spouse. That's why as Christians, we have to work every day to work together with God, to partner with him, to participate in our allegiance with Christ. Okay, so on the cross, what happens is Jesus is saying, I am showing the world a new kind of power, a new kind of power that the world has never seen. Because how do earthly kings rule? They rule out of fear and violence. But God comes and he says, look, there's this new power. I'm going to show you it. It's called love. And it looks like the greatest picture of love is like God, the most powerful force in the universe, laying down his life for people. That is a brand new kind of power in the world. And so on the cross, in some mysterious way, uh, God is ushering in his new kingdom this new kingdom that he's ushering in the world. And ever since then, uh, that kingdom is expanding. That kingdom is expanding. There's some scholars who'd say, like, even before the, cro the cross, this kind of concept of human rights that wasn't even, didn't even exist. That, that came across after, after the cross. The cross ushered in this new thing in the world. And God invites us to participate in that, okay? And so, so we've got the cross. They usher in something very new into the world, this new power, this new kingdom where King Jesus is on his throne. So what is the resurrection? Three days later, what happens? This is Christ saying, and this is the kind of thing that happens in the kingdom, in this new kingdom. This is the kind of thing. And yes, uh, Christ was showing us that you are one day going to rise from the dead as well. You're going to be resurrected. Um, I'm just showing you how it's done. 
the firstborn of the dead, right? Jesus. He rises from the dead and he shows this is the kind of thing that happens. And so we're invited to participate in that. So what happens in the kingdom? Uh, people are healed. People are brought out of poverty. People are given justice. These are the kind of things. So I want to talk a little bit more about the specifics about what those kind of things look like in the kingdom of God. Um, we often take for granted the good things that, that God's people do in the world, that churches do and that Christians do in the world. If you think about like Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, one of the most uh, greatest American heroes that did amazing, amazing things that, you know, even non-Christians look at in awe. And oftentimes, and I'm not one who's against the media by any means, but oftentimes the media will go to great lengths to downplay the Christian minister part of his vocation, that basically the, the inciting incident and everything he does, did was his love for Christ and, his, and the call uh, of Christ for justice. Um, we're very much acquainted of uh, the news reporting when Christians behave badly, as they should as they should. Don't get me wrong, I am disheartened to hear the terrible, awful things that people who call themselves Christ followers are done today. And I don't think we should shy away from that or deny it or, or belittle it or circle the wagons. We need to call out those things. But we also need to acknowledge when God is at work in the world through his people. Um, we got another slide. I don't know if you guys watch, uh, read The Onion um, the Onion is a satirical news site, um, and this is one of my favorite articles that they, they put out. It's very short, so I'm actually, I'm going to read it to you, okay? Remember, this is satirical. Macon, Georgia, uh, sources confirmed today that the brainwashed morons of First Baptist Assembly of God, all whom blindly accept whatever simplistic fairy tales are fed to them, volunteer each Wednesday night to provide meals to impoverished members of the community. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in town who have fallen on hard times and are unable to afford to put food on the table, so we try to help out as best we can, said 48-year-old Carrie Bellamy, one of the mindless sheep who adhere to a backwards theology and is incapable of thinking for herself, while spooning out homemade shepherd's pie to a line of poor and homeless individuals. It feels great to share our blessing with the less fortunate. Plus, it's, a fun, it's fun to work alongside all of the members of our, and in brackets it says, corrupt institution of propaganda and lies, who come out each week. As of press time, the brainless, unthinking lemmings had donated winter clothing they no longer wore to several needy families and still hadn't opened their eyes to reality. Um, so I, I've found that the onion tends to be very prophetic in, in a lot of ways, and uh, I love the way that it points this out, that we often uh, downplay the good work or don't even hear about the good work that God's people are doing and hear often the negative side. So I want to give some uh, other specific examples of people that I actually know of. So um, this is an a organization called Preemptive Love. Has anybody heard of Preemptive Love? Uh, so my wife and I went to college with Jeremy Courtney, the founder of Preemptive Love, um, he and his wife were originally missionaries in Iraq. And while he was there, he had this encounter with uh, someone whose daughter had a heart condition. And um, the, the father was desperate. And all he knew was that there was this rich American there, and he had nothing left to lose. And he told him the story. And... Uh, long story short, uh, Jeremy doesn't know what happened to that man or his daughter. He lost touch. But he started investigating this problem of, of heart conditions in Iraq. Um, they were 
prevalent there. And part of that was because of um, some of the chemicals that the United States had used in the first Iraq war. It had, uh, the people had absorbed that when they had children, it was causing these heart defects. Um, and then some other factors as well uh, that, that uh, were prevalent in the Middle East. It kind of caused this perfect storm of heart defects being more prevalent in the children there. And so he started this organization, Preemptive Love, and in the beginning what they would do is they would fly over Western doctors to basically do marathon surgeries for these kids. While they were in the country, they would do as many surgeries as they could. The other thing about these heart conditions were they were perfectly fixable by today's medical standards, but Iraq just didn't have the medical infrastructure. And these kids were gonna die without it. So they started sending over these uh, surgeons and then eventually what they would do is they would send over the surgeons to do them but they would also have Iraqi doctors by their side who would learn and watch what they were doing so that they could themselves uh, do that. It's really transformed the medical community in Iraq. So they've since, they did that for years and years and so many lives were changed. Um, and they've recently kind of pivoted because of all of the conflict in the Middle East, it's created this refugee crisis in Iraq. And so um, Preemptive Love has kind of become this uh, preeminent aid organization in Iraq where so many organizations who do good things but just don't have boots on the ground in Iraq because of the previous work that they've done, they're there. So they're like providing blankets that keep people warm at night. I mean, life-saving stuff, providing water, providing food, uh, saving people's lives on the ground, doing miraculous work. And Jeremy absolutely does this out of his love of God. The organization has grown much greater than himself, but he's still there. He and his family live in Iraq, and they're doing this wonderful work there. Again, their preemptive love coalition. So uh, next slide. Some of you may know, does anybody know Latasha Morrison or Be the Bridge, that organization? So Latasha lived here until recently. She recently moved back to Atlanta. Um, but she started this organization called Be the Bridge, and this is a place where, or an organization where uh, people of color and white folks can come together, and people of, and, and white folks who want to really understand um, racial tension and what it is like to live the life of a person of color can come and, and ask earnest questions in good faith. And this is what this community is here for. There are groups all over the country that meet, be the bridge groups in people's houses where people come together and they learn. And Latasha does all of this in the name of Christ. The gospel is justice come to life. Okay, next slide. Uh, my wife and I, we went to undergrad in uh, Brownwood, Texas, not too far from here. Uh, a little Christian university there, and uh, there was this professor there who says, said it. I got this wrong this morning too, Jesus, which is, you know, Jesus in English. I don't know how I get that wrong. Jesus Romero, um, he has started this organization. Uh, they were, actually work with the Baptist Journal Convention of Texas here, but they work with all kinds of churches here in Texas. Um, they help churches, churches, to uh, know how to help immigrants begin the paperwork they need for their citizenship to make them legal. So like it says here, um, assistance in obtaining immigration law training, completing recognition and accreditation programs, uh, helping starting ESL, citizenship and other literacy programs and uh, education and information on immigration matters. And so uh, this is an organization that is really, really 
helping, providing real help for people in need, and they're doing it through the church, through the people of God, bringing wholeness to the world. Okay, next slide. Uh, some of you may have heard about this. This is actually the, a screenshot of the uh, Good Morning America uh, website. Um, this is Alfred Street Baptist Church. It's an historic black church in the Alexandria, Virginia area. And um, they did this remarkable thing. They um, fasted from various things for a month. So the pastor himself, he said he fasted from coffee. And, and they just encouraged people to fast, pray this entire month. But whatever you with, uh, abstain from, uh, set aside that money. And, and then we're going to give it for a worthy cause. The congregation themselves didn't know what it was going to be. This, the month, they raised $100,000. $100,000 during this month. So obviously it's a large church, but still $100,000. Um, they went and they donated it to 34 college students at a historically black college who, not just for their tuition, but were not going to be able to graduate without that payment. So these are people that completed their coursework but until they paid off uh, for their classes, they would not be able to walk the stage. They would not be able to graduate. The pastor, they didn't just write a check. The pastor went and met with each one of these students and heard their story and decided who would get this money. And so 34 students are going to graduate college because of this church. They had, they had no formal contact with them. They weren't friends or family. They were just people they knew that needed this money. Give over $100,000 to help these students graduate from college. All over the world, there are Christians bringing wholeness to a broken world and addressing every problem in the world. Uh, global warming, uh, poverty, racism, health care, uh, refugees, disaster relief, criminal justice. I've got one more. So let's see what the next slide is. Okay, yeah, this is one I thought it was. Uh, this is my friend Dominique. He wrote this book called Rethinking Incarceration. Um, and... All I can say is you should go read this book. Our, our criminal justice um, system uh, is obviously light years ahead of a lot of the world and yet far from perfect, and there are a lot of inequalities in it. And in this book, Dominique detailed how, honestly, the church had been complicit in some of these inequalities in the past. Um, and, and so we've come a long way, but we still have a lot more, a long, a long way to go in that, in that reform in criminal justice. And so um, Dominique has written this book. It's fantastic. Please go check it out. My point is all over the world, Christians are active in bringing wholeness to the world in every domain in every domain, and they're doing it in Jesus's name. And this is the difference between people of God and, and wonderful people who are uh, not believers, but who are doing good work. Here's the difference. When we do it as Christians, we are not giving a painkiller to mask the pain. We are not the ibuprofen to just take away the pain. But hopefully what we should be doing is we are being the white blood cells that actually defeat the virus the underlying virus. We don't just mask the pain, but we defeat the virus. So it would be very cool and very trendy for me to kind of mention all these social justice type things that I've talked about, but to not talk about the role of uh, prayer. So I want to tell a story real quick. Um, this story, uh, well, I heard this as being retold by Craig Keener, who is a New Testament uh, scholar, He's probably one of the world's greatest scholars on the book of Acts, probably. He started getting interested in miracles because he was reading the book of Acts, doing a commentary, and he 
came across all the miracles in the book of Acts. So he started kind of chronicling those and then looking for modern-day miracles. So he came across this one. This is about a woman named Barbara Kaminsky Snyder. Uh, I think there's a picture. There she is. Um, and this, before I read this, I need to, to give this pretext because uh, I realized something as I was reading it this morning to my church. This sounds like an email forward I would get from my elderly grandmother. Um, it is not. This has been written about two of Barbara's doctors have written in books about this case. Um, and then Craig himself, Craig Keener, uh, contacted those doctors and got the details from, from them. So this is not some rumor. Uh, it's not something going around. It's verifiable. As far as I can tell, Barbara herself is alive. She's not like a public personality. She's just a woman who was healed. So here's her story. Um, her doctors described her. She got... Um, she was diagnosed with progressive multiple sclerosis, um, and she started exhibiting symptoms while she was in high school. And her doctor said that she was one of the most hopelessly ill patients they'd ever seen. For, after she gets diagnosed, she continued to deteriorate for the next 16 years. She would spend months at a time in the hospital. One of her lungs became non-functional, and the other operated at less than 50%. A tracheostomy tube had to be put in, inserted in her neck so that canisters that they kept in her garage would pump oxygen into her body. She would lose control of her bodily functions, had to have a catheter inserted. She went legally blind. She had feeding tubes that had to be inserted into her stomach. Her abdomen was swollen because the muscles around her intestines did not work anymore. Her body was de becoming deformed because all of her mus muscles in her body had atrophied. By 1981, she hadn't walked in seven years. Her body was twisted into this fetal position, and a doctor told her family it was just a matter of time before she died, and so she entered hospice care in her home. It was about that time someone called into the radio station of Moody Bible Institute and told Barbara's story and asked for prayer. So this gets broadcast over the radio, and as a product of that, some 450 Christians sent letters to Barbara's church, or the church that Barbara's family had been attending, and let them know that they were praying for Barbara. So on Pentecost Sunday, 1981, Barbara's aunt comes over to read her some of those letters that had been sent in. There were some friends there as well. In a lull in the conversation, Barbara heard a man's voice and said, my child, get up and walk. There were no men in the room. Her friends saw that she had become agitated, so they, put her, uh, they plugged a hole in her neck so that she could speak. And she said, I don't know what you're going to think about this, but God just told me to get up and walk. Run and get my family. I want them here with us. So her friends yell for her family, and Barbara is just really compelled to do what she's been commanded to do immediately. And she jumps up. She stands up. She removes her oxygen. She was on legs that hadn't held her up in years. Her vision was back. She breathed fine without her oxygen. She could move freely. Now her legs for this, her feet had been contorted into a downward position, and now all of a sudden she's standing flat on her feet. In the story, uh, it says when her mom sees her immediately, she sees that there are muscles in her legs that just had not been there for years. That night at her church, um, they open up for prayer requests, and Barbara walks down the aisle. And these people know of her. They've been going to church with their family for years, and they're gasping. So, as far as I know, Barbara is alive today. 
She's had no other relapses. She seems to be healed. Um, I don't know about you. I'm a, I'm a naturally skeptical person. I try to look for natural means. There is phenomenon in the medical community about kind of natural, uh, or not natural, spontaneous uh, healing. Um, it is possible that that's what's happened here. It does not explain Barbara hearing the voice saying, get up my child and walk. Um, and and I, I don't know, I, I, I feel like this is not the case here, but uh, there are some times when we talk about miraculous things where people are like, uh, you lost me. Um, you, I like the part where you talked about the social justice kind of stuff, people doing good works, but you lost me on the miraculous stuff. Um, ironically, it's either, it's either my unbelieving friends who are like that or my friends who kind of grew up in a charismatic church that have baggage from that and they left that. Uh, I did not, so I'm like, I'm all for it. Yeah, let's do that stuff. I don't have any baggage from that stuff. What I will say is, is that we can't have it both ways. If we're going to come here and we're going to sing songs to God, for which I assume we believe he hears us, if we're going to share prayer requests, for which I assume we think God can do something about that, then let's follow the natural conclusion of that and ask God to do miraculous things. Now, look, where we go wrong is if we say, if someone doesn't get healed, well, you didn't pray enough, or you weren't a good enough believer. Uh, I find none of that in the Bible. Listen, there are so many uh, factors that we don't know about. Even in the spiritual world and the medical world, I have to assume that the spiritual world is the same. There's a lot of things going on that we don't know about. But if people are not healed after we pray, that is God's business, but our business is to ask for it. I have a feeling that stories like this are much more common that we think than we think, and maybe more common if we would simply ask for them to happen more often. So, we need no money to be people of God. We don't need to donate $100,000. We simply need to be faithful to bring about his wholeness in the world and in his kingdom. So let us be people of wholeness, bringing wholeness to the world as a part of God's mission of rescue and recreation.